Okay, great. So I want to welcome everybody here, and we're going to start with a word of prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. I thank you for each person who's taken the trouble to come tonight. We pray that you would open our hearts to what you might desire for us to hear and to learn, and that we would be able to take the experience of your follower, C.S. Lewis, and we would be able to translate it and apply it in a way that would be life-giving for each of us. We thank you for this time and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to ask you all to be quiet and just watch this for a little bit because this scene is something that is hugely important in understanding C.S. Lewis. And the reason for that is that, as I mentioned before, Lewis lived in college um, at Maudlin College, Oxford, which meant that during the week, He had rooms in the college where he stayed, and he moved into Maudlin uh, when he was about 27 years old, and he lived there um, until he was in his mid-50s. And when he moved in, he was an atheist, but in around 1930-ish, he began seriously the road to his Christian conversion. Once he converted to Christianity, he started worshiping twice a day in this chapel. And this chapel became hugely important in his spiritual development. This chapel looks like a cathedral. Each college in Oxford has a chapel. They all look like cathedrals. They're gorgeous. This was built in the 15th century. uh, And Lewis was there. It's almost like a monastic routine for him of going to worship early in the morning and then going to Evensong. And this is the choir of the chapel singing Evensong. They have a foundation that was established by the King of England in the 1400s to provide scholarships for the boy choristers. It's a very fine choir. So I want you to just um, listen to that for a little bit, and then we will start up. And just look at how beautiful it is. that all night, but um, we're not going to do that because we have way too much to cover for that. So tonight we are going to keep on with what we began working on uh, before, and so I want to just walk you through very quickly a little review that we're looking at Lewis because he's such an unlikely Christian, someone who Uh, by all rights, could have been like many people today, better against God, came from a dysfunctional family. Um, He was very smart and had a lot of worldly success early on and could easily have just kept on that road of atheism. But he was trapped by this idea of Zainzut that we've talked about, which is that longing for something more, that sense when you watch a beautiful sunset or hear sublime music, or have a really amazing experience that you somehow touched something that is beyond this world. And he couldn't lose that, and it had a huge impact on him. And then J.R.R. Tolkien uh, befriended him, and that 
really is what brought him to Christ, and we'll talk about that later. Um, Lewis, one of his uh, secretaries, called him the most thoroughly converted man. Every aspect of his life was under uh, his faith's influence. Uh, lots of different roles that he had. Uh, one of the things about him is his worldview, which is hugely important for us today. A lot of people don't even think about what their worldview is. What's the framework of what you believe for decision making, which is why he's important. He's also important because he was extremely authentic. He went from being extremely arrogant to being extremely humble, uh, which was remarkable for someone of his talents. And that authenticity is something that people hunger for in our world today. Uh, his humility, his gift for analogy and story, we'll talk more about that, his heart after God, and his emphasis on joy, that humans were not created to just exist and to be in drudgery, but that we were created by God to experience joy and to bring joy to others. So he's a great role model for that. Um, we talked about you can be on the beach, all you have to do is show up, no work at all. Or you can snorkel, you can read the handouts, or you can scuba dive, you can go deeper, uh, you can really read the handouts. Um, I will send out some things in the email to suggest that you look out further. Um, any of those are fine, and you can do one one week and the other the next, whatever you want to do. Alistair McGrath's book, If I Had Lunch with C.S. Lewis, I encourage you to order it. It's a great book. We're using it as a framework, but we're not going to study it word for word. So, uh, last week, we talked a little bit about existing versus living. This whole idea of what is the meaning of life, which is sort of a joke now that we talk about, uh, you know, what's the meaning of life, and you think of people, you know, going and finding themselves in Tibet. But the fact of the matter is that's a hugely important question that each person needs to answer. And we have plenty of answers in our culture from atheists, uh, you can go back to the existentialists like Sartre, or you can go to the new atheists like Richard Dawkins and find plenty of people that want to argue that there is no God and the universe is cruel. Lewis was very much like that, except he kept finding there were things that he couldn't explain rationally that touched his heart in some way. And he also realized that reason cannot prove even its own trustworthiness. Because if you're using your brain to think about whether your brain is thinking properly, that's not really a very objective standard. We talked a little bit last week about the weight of glory, uh, which I commend to you. And this whole idea that when you have the right worldview, it's like this quotation from Chesterton, that you put on this worldview theory, and like a magic hat, history becomes translucent like a house of glass. That when you do that, when you have the right worldview, suddenly all of these disparate parts of your experience come together and actually begin making sense. And one of the things that ultimately attracted Lewis to Christianity is he said, it's illogical. No one would make up something like this. Um, it has so many odd things about it, but that it has that feeling of truth with a capital T. So tonight, we're going to go a little farther into this meaning and purpose and look at what took Lewis and started him on the road to thinking about whether there might be something more. And there's a wonderful quotation up here from Henri Poincaré, which is so much fun to say. Um, or you can call Henry Poincaré if you want to. But Henri Poincaré, um, who was from one of the great intellectual families of France. His first cousin was the president of France um, right after World War II. Um, but he was a brilliant polymath with doctorates in mathematics and physics. And he died an atheist, but he was always very troubled about whether Christianity might be true. And one of his quotations was that it is by logic that we prove, but by intuition that we discover. And I would encourage you um, over the next week to just reflect a little bit on that, because I think that's a profoundly true statement. And the idea is that facts can only get you so far, and analyzing facts will never cause you to have that leap that will take you into the realm of wonder 
or new discovery. So keep that in the back of your mind. Uh, Lewis, interestingly enough, Lewis was a big fan of science. And that often surprises people. But Lewis said, if you find an honest scientist, the honest scientist is going to be one of the best advocates for moving toward faith. He, on the other hand, was a rampant foe, once he converted to Christianity, of what he called scientism, which is the worship of science as a religion. Uh, and we are in a culture that very much participates in scientism. If you've had anything to do with the school at any level, unless it's profoundly Christian school, scientism rules the roost. And that's basically the idea that only what you can know logically and prove logically, that is all you can know. That rationality is the only way of knowing. And that's part of the reason Lewis is so important, because Lewis's conversion mirrors what needs to happen in our culture today. For people to be able to understand that limiting yourself to the purely rational ignores a lot of human existence. Uh, there was a handout that I gave you last week that was in your email that I want to just reference, which was the hope chapter out of mere Christianity. And I don't want to go into all of it, but I commend it to you, even if you are on the beach, uh, because Lewis posits, it's very short, it's just front and back of a sheet, but he talks about how people deal with this fact that there's this longing and the sense that there's something more. And what he says, I think, is really profound because it resonates so much if you have deep conversations with people who are searching and are honest enough to talk about it, uh, where they land. So uh, on this little handout, and you don't really need to look at this, I'm just going to read you a little bit. He says, people have the sense that there's something more, and they deal with it in three ways. The first way is what he calls the fool's way. So that tells you what he thinks of this. Uh, he says, in this option, the man puts the blame on the things themselves. He goes on all his life thinking that only if he tried another woman or went for a more expensive holiday or whatever it is, then this time he would really catch the mysterious something we are all after. Most of the bored, discontented, rich people in the world are of this type. They spend their whole lives trotting from woman to woman through divorce courts, from continent to continent, from hobby to hobby, always thinking the latest is the real thing at last, and always disappointed. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> and then the second way is the way of disillusionment. And basically what that says is that when you're young, you think that there really is the possibility of achieving these things, but then you realize it's all smoke and mirrors, and we're all going to hell in a handbasket, <laughs> and it's basically very depressing. So that's the second way. And then the third way is the Christian way. And he says, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, there's such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire, there's such a thing as sex. If I find, my, find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care never to despise or be unthankful for earthly blessings, and on the other hand, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. So that's, a, I think, a pretty succinct statement that covers where most people that we know find themselves. All of us know people that are on that quest for pleasure. They keep thinking they're going to get they get the right boat, the right house, the right trophy wife, lose the right amount of weight, go to gym class, whatever it might be, that somehow they're going to achieve this joy, and yet they never get there. So Lewis is very strong on the fact that if you follow that desire, uh, which he would link with Zainzu, if you follow that desire, that that is going to lead you to the truth of Christianity.
This is a bird's eye view of this with the bird flying really fast. <laughs> All right, so um, I want you to pull out two of your handouts that you got tonight. Um, they're the ones that are clearly photocopied out of a book. Uh, one of them says Lewis and Barfield at the top, and the other one says uh, Colin Durier, Tolkien, and C.S. Lewis at the bottom. So if you will just get both of those out. And I want to talk a little bit about C.S. Lewis and Owen Barfield. Owen Barfield was one of the Inklings, this group of people that gathered around Lewis. And he was one of Lewis's first friends at Oxford. And he became friends with Lewis when Lewis was at the height of his silver-tongued atheism, as one of his friends said. Lewis could argue a stump into the ground. He was very gifted at oratory. And so he met Owen Barfield, and Owen Barfield was at Wadham College, uh, which is just down the road from University College, where Lewis was. One of the things about Oxford is it's essentially sort of like if you took Charleston from Legree Street to East Bay and from South Abroad down to Murray Boulevard, that's about the size of Oxford. And all of these colleges at the university are all cheek by jowl in that area. So there's a lot of visiting back and forth. They're all designed on the monastic model. They all have a cloister, they have gardens, they have a chapel, they have a refectory, they have a dormitory, and they have classroom space. So Lewis and Barfield met each other, and Lewis found Barfield to be really annoying. But he also respected the fact that he said that Barfield has forgotten more in his short life than I have learned in mine. Well, that's really saying something. Lewis, we haven't talked about all of this, but Lewis was translating plays from the Greek when he was 15. So uh, just want to run through a couple of these things up here. So we talked about Lewis became a fellow of Magdalen College while he was still in his 20s. That's like becoming a professor at Harvard when you're still in your 20s. This is kind of the pinnacle of earthly success for an academic in the UK. In addition to that, his long, long, boring poem called Dimer, which is a big atheistic poem that is worth the trouble to wade through, but uh, I wouldn't commend it just yet. Uh, he had gotten that published, so he was on the top of the world, and yet, like that first person that we talked about in the Hope chapter, he found like it was not enough. He was not happy. He was not experiencing joy. And he continued reading, and there's this great quotation that I'll just read. All the books were beginning to turn against me. Indeed, I must have been as blind as a bat not to have seen long before the ludicrous contradiction between my theory of life and any actual experience as a reader. The most religious were clearly those on whom I could really feed. And then this next little quotation from Walter Hooper, who was his secretary. The poetry Lewis really cared about was not Ezra Pound and Gertrude Stein. All these years, the greatest pleasure he ever had was from Christian poetry, things like Spencer and Milton, all these great poets. And yet he found, he found out that he was reading them, as he later said, with the point left out. The same thing was happening with his friends. The people he thought he should have liked were the college atheists. But the ones he really liked were Tolkien, a practicing, very devout Catholic, and Owen Barfield, who asked all the right <coughs> questions. So these handouts, um, the first one uh, from the Lewis and Barfield, which is from Alistair McGrath's biography of Lewis, that I would commend to you, um, you'll see in that uh, second paragraph that Lewis called Barfield the wisest and best of my unofficial teachers. And one of the things that's so important about Barfield, if you look in the next paragraph, he says Lewis credits him with bringing about two fundamental changes in his own thinking. The first of these was the demolition of Lewis's chronological snobbery, which Lewis defined as the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. Now, we've talked briefly about chronological snobbery, but if there were ever any theme that our culture 
really needs to get pushed back against about, it is exactly this. This is the whole politically correct movement. This is the whole, what we know now is more important than we're so much smarter and better and more advanced than anybody in the history of the world, uh, which is ludicrous on many levels and throws out the whole history of the human race. So uh, Barfield really helped Lewis with that because Lewis was a very bright modernist. He believed in the, the here and now and not the things that were old. And the second change was about Lewis's thinking about reality. And you will see that he talks about Lewis uh, thinking that what you could perceive with your senses was rock bottom reality and that this was scientific and it was the only thing that mattered. And if you read the rest of this, you would see basically Barfield convinced Lewis that in intuition, experience of this Zainzucht, this idea of knowing something in a way that isn't rational, was a valid way of knowing. Now, the interesting thing about this is there's a lot of current research going on that's very much like this. How many of y'all have read the book Blank? <clears throat> so Blank, the basic thesis of Blank is that there is all of this unconscious stuff going on in our perceptions that we don't really realize that really is extremely influential in the way that we make decisions. And that it's not rational, but that it has to do with the, the whole of who we are um, and uses our unconscious, um, which is in some ways similar to this idea of intuition. So this idea that there are other ways of knowing than strictly rational was one of the reasons Barfield was so important. All right, we're going to take a risk here and try to switch to the video. Um, Andrew O'Dell, who is my tech person, um, is not here uh, because he has the flu. So um, we're going to see if we can get this to actually work. Your experience that okay. parallels that, do you think... In 1922, Jack Lewis took his degree in classics and philosophy from Oxford University. Thank you. Of course. At the time, reason and logic dominated academic thinking. Lewis describes the new psychology of Freud, which made a tremendous impact upon undergraduate, particularly somebody like Lewis, whose life was so imaginative. The new psychology was at that time sweeping through us all. We were all influenced. We were all concerned about fantasy or wishful thinking. I formed the resolution of always judging and acting with the greatest good sense. He was saying that all youth at that time were trying to escape from wish fulfillment dreams. But they got that from Freud. And they wanted to, in one way, spit on the images of their youth and go on to they knew not what, but anyway, leave that behind because it was juvenile. Lewis was writing a long poem called Dimer. In it, he portrayed belief in God as a tempting illusion, one that had to be resisted. <coughs> but he found that in his own life, he wasn't so certain. The question of God's existence would not let him go. That's the Bodley Library. I was, at that time, living like many atheists in a world of contradictions. I maintained that God did not exist. I was also very angry with God for not existing. <laughs> I was equally angry with him for creating a world. Why should creatures have the burden of existence forced on them without their consent? More than anything, Lewis wanted to write poetry, and for that, he needed the security of an academic career. He applied for teaching jobs at Oxford, but college after college turned him down. 
I was attacked by a series of gloomy thoughts about professional and literary failure. Such a rage against poverty and fear and all the infernal net I seemed to be in that I went out and mowed the lawn and cursed all the gods for half an hour. Lewis's first ambition, a burning ambition from the age of about 15, was to be a poet, a great poet. I could not say simply that I desired not my fame, but that of the poem, nor was the feeling a disinterested love for Dimer simply as a poem. It was a desire that something that I recognised as my own should publicly be found good. His hopes were finally fulfilled in 1925. Magdalen College made him a fellow. The next year, he found a publisher for his long poem, Dimer. Success at last. But it was not enough. All the books were beginning to turn against me. Indeed, I must have been as blind as a bat not to have seen long before the ludicrous contradiction between my theory of life and my actual experiences as a reader. The most religious were clearly those on whom I could really feed. The poetry he really cared about was not Ezra Pound and Gertrude Stein. All these years, the greatest pleasure he ever had was from Christian poetry. Things like uh, Spencer, uh, Milton, all of these great poets. And yet he found out that he was reading them, as he later said, with the point left out. The same thing was happening with his friends. The people he thought he should have liked were the college atheists. But the ones he really liked were Tolkien, a practicing, very devout Catholic. Owen Barfield, who asked all the right questions. I can only describe it as the great war between Barfield and me. When I set out to correct his heresies, I find that he had decided to correct mine. And then we went at it, hammer and tongs, far into the night. Night after night. Barfield believed that the imagination plays a very important part in how we know. He rejected the model that science is the only way to, to truth, to acquiring truth. He felt that um, the imagination was lay behind even the work of science. It gave meaning to, to uh, propositions. And so he felt that Lewis was missing out in his whole approach to reality on what made knowledge possible. I was suddenly compelled to read the Hippolytus of Euripides. Oh God, bring me to the sea's end, to the Hesperides, sisters of evening, who sing alone in their islands where the golden apples grow, and the Lord of Oceans guards the way from all who would sail into their night-blue harbours. Let me escape to the rim of the world, where the tremendous firmament meets the earth, and Atlas holds the universe in his palms. For there, in the palace of Zeus, wells of ambrosia pour through the chambers, while the sacred earth lavishes life, and time adds his years only to heaven's happiness. I was off once more into the land of longing, my heart at once broken and exalted as it had never been since the old days. I was overwhelmed. I called it joy. When Lewis talks about joy, he talks about something that he labels the central theme of his whole life. But what he means by joy is not the satisfaction of a desire, but a desire that is more desirable than any satisfaction. There was no doubt joy was a desire, but a desire is turned not to itself, but to an object. 
I had been wrong in supposing that I desired for joy itself. All value lay in that of which joy was the desiring, the naked other, unknown, undefined, desired. I did not yet ask who is desired. The very experience of joy that Lewis had was uh, an arrow that led to the target of belief in God. Lewis argued innate deep desires do not exist unless they correspond to something that can satisfy them. If there is hunger, there is food. If there is sexual desire, there is sex. If there is curiosity, there is knowledge. So if there is the desire for this thing that is beyond this world, there must be something beyond this world. Lewis was still resisting, but growing tired from the struggle. The fox had now been dislodged from the wood and was running in the open, bedraggled and weary, the hounds barely a field behind. The odd thing was that before God closed in on me, I was in fact offered what now appears to be a moment of wholly free choice. I was going up Headington Hill on the top of a bus. Without words, and almost without images, a fact about myself was somehow presented to me. I became aware that I was holding something at bay. I felt myself being given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I chose to open. I felt as if I were a man of snow, at long last beginning to melt. Drip, drip. And presently, trickle, trickle. I had always wanted, above all things, not to be interfered with. I had wanted, <laughs> mad wish, to call my soul my own. I had been far more anxious to avoid suffering than to achieve delight. Picture me alone in that room at Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. Total surrender. The absolute leap in the dark were demanded. I gave in and admitted that God was God. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Lewis wrote in a letter about it. So one of the things that you see in that is Lewis's uh, first step, if you will, in conversion. And the interesting thing about that is that Lewis began the process of conversion converting to theism. So he didn't necessarily convert all the way to Christianity right at the beginning. He converted from atheism, believing that there was no God. Lewis was not an agnostic. He, he didn't think he was confused. He was very sure that there was no God, and he was an evangelist for that point of view. So for him to come 180 degrees from that and say, I was wrong, yes, there is a God, was huge. And so that's part of that whole most dejected and reluctant convert language that he's using there. And part of the reason for that was that he was battling, on the one hand, his rational training, but on the other hand, battling what was going on, on in his soul, not only with his experiences of beauty and joy and the literature that he was attracted to and the poetry and all of those kinds of things, but also that zainzuk, that sense of longing that wasn't satisfied by all the things that he had been told would satisfy him. That if you work hard enough, 
and you do really well, and you get a great job, and you get published as an author, and you're still in your 20s, man, you should be on top of the world. And he wasn't. And so that made him realize there was something wrong with his framework. Now, one of the other things that is a beautiful thing about C.S. Lewis, and the more you study him, the more you see this, is he was painfully honest with himself. And that's part of his deal on this search for truth. He was very honest about things that he struggled with. So uh, one of the other things that you may have noticed as you were watching that video is there was a lot of footage of Lewis outside. And one of the things that people don't realize about Lewis, you have this idea of him sitting in some ivory tower room all the time, smoking, um, and never going outside. Uh, and he certainly did sit in his room, and he did like his pipe. But he was a huge outdoorsman. His favorite thing to do was to be hiking, particularly in the mountains in England. And he would do these long walks with Tolkien that would be 30 and 40 miles, where they would camp or stay in pubs along the way. And one of the odd things about Oxford that if you've been there, you've been able to appreciate is that most of these colleges have these enormous parks that are next to them that are sometimes over 100 acres. So you're right in town, but like Lewis's rooms, the back of that beautiful building there, there's a deer park where there's a huge wood with deer wandering around. And then adjacent to that, there's a forest. So it was very easy to just literally walk a couple of blocks and be lost in what felt like being way out on Wadmalaw. So it's um, a different sort of environment than you might think. And the nature was hugely influential in Lewis's conversion because he was very sensitive to the beauty and order and design that he saw in nature. All right, so one of the things that was uh, interesting about Lewis and Barfield uh, that Lewis talks about in his autobiography, and I'm just going to read you this, it's a little bit hard to see. That's Wadham College in the background there. Lewis, when speaking about Owen Barfield, once said that there are only, well, I guess I'll read it from here, there are only two kinds of best friends a person can have. One was the type of friend Lewis had had during his younger years in Arthur Greaves. Uh, this was the kind of person with whom you had everything in common. The other was the kind of friend he had in Owen Barfield, and this is the type of friend with whom you disagree about everything. He has read all the right books, but has got all the wrong thing out of every one. How can he be so nearly right, and yet invariably just not right? He is at the same time fascinating and infuriating. I can only describe it as the great war between Barfield and me. When I set out to correct his heresies, I find he had decided to correct mine. And then we went at it hammer and tongs far into the night, night after night. Barfield believed that the imagination plays a very important part in how we know. He rejected the model that science is the only way to truth or to acquiring truth. He felt that the imagination was laid behind even the work of science. It gave meaning to propositions. And so he felt that Lewis was missing out in his whole approach to reality on what made knowledge possible. Now, you may wonder, why are we talking about all of this? The reason this is so important is that if you spend much time with people in our culture who are not Christians, uh, you will hear a lot of these same kinds of things. You'll hear a lot about the scientific method, you'll hear a lot about Darwin, you'll hear about the only way you can know things is rationality. And Lewis is a great model to study about how to talk past that with people. Talk about why imagination, intuition, zainzuk, longing, all of these things that make life worth living are really important and are deeply rooted in the human experience. So that's part of the reason that Lewis is so important. And I want to give a little book plug here. And this particular book is, um, remember we were talking a little bit about John Grisham before. Um, some things are not so easy to read. Some things you need to chew on. 
Um, that essay that we had on reading old books, uh, which I would commend to you, it's a great essay. Um, I'm taking my own advice and reading uh, Lewis's uh, book that that was the introduction for, which is Athanasius's Treatise on the Incarnation that was written in the fourth century. And um, it's a little bit dense, but <laughs> you have to chew on it, and it's satisfying. It's like the difference between eating popcorn and eating a really good steak. And it's, it's worth, worth the trouble. But this book is easy to read, but also really profound. And this is a book called Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, The Gift of Friendship. And it's by Colin Durier, who you just saw um, on the screen. Colin is a friend of mine. He's been here at St. Phillips to speak, um, stayed with Jane and me. Um, he is one of the world scholars on the Inklings. And this book will give you a profound insight into the relationship between Lewis and Tolkien that was hugely important in both their lives. If Lewis had never met Tolkien, he said he would never have written the Space Trilogy, he would never have written the Chronicles of Narnia, and probably he would never have become a Christian. <clears throat> Tolkien said if he had never met Lewis, he would never have written The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. And so you think about God's providence and bringing these two people together who easily could have been rivals instead of friends, because Tolkien also was the other bright young genius at Oxford in the same decade. And if you know academia, you know it's cutthroat. And so uh, the fact that they became fast friends is very unusual. But this book is really easy to read and profound at the same time. So if you're going to order any book, maybe even more than the If I Had Lunch With book, um, I would order this one because I think it gives you an insight into understanding the two of them that you just don't get anywhere else. And Colin has lived and breathed C.S. Lewis and Tolkien for probably about 50 years at this point and uh, spends most of his time in the Bodleian Library manuscript collections. So uh, I commend this to you. It is very much worth reading. So again, it's Colin Durier. That's D-U-R-I-E-Z. And I'll put that in the email so you know. Uh, but it, it's a terrific book. So this whole idea of the imagination is really, really important. And Lewis and Barfield, when they went at it hammer and tongs, he really means that. They argued for like eight hours at a time. And other people in Oxford made fun of them because this is the garden at Wadham. You can see it's a big garden. See that wall over there? There's a path next to the wall. And it's a big courtyard that's about like if you were going to walk from Church and Queen, and you went all the way up Cumberland and around State and back. It's about that far. And they would just go round and round and round and round, arguing with each other. And the great thing about that is that most of what they were arguing about was this reason and imagination. And one of the things that you probably noticed from the excerpt that we read was that Lewis changed his mind. Now, that's pretty amazing for someone who is an arrogant academic to change his mind. And he changed his mind about two fundamentally important things. One, this idea of progress. Lewis began to see that progress and what the world called the latest thing was often a step backward. And that this whole idea of chronological snobbery, of thinking that we know so much more and our experience is so much richer and more true than the experience of human beings of other generations was actually just ridiculous if you step back from it and look at it. So he changed his view about that, which pointed him back toward the classics and particularly toward Plato. We're going to spend some time talking about Plato. So if you studied Plato in college, you might want to brush up on that. If you don't know who Plato is, stay tuned. Um, we'll talk about him. Um, but the other thing was this role of imagination and the whole idea that imagination was hugely important. And it's interesting if you read very much philosophy today, um, there's been a big resurgence in this point of view about the imagination, uh, which is very encouraging to see because for a while, philosophy was going very strongly in the direction of atheism, 
but it's really started turning the corner and coming back in the search for meaning. And imagination is a large part of that. And if you think about it, uh, one of the things that is interesting is that this whole idea that Lewis had of not wanting to be interfered with, any of you that have had teenagers um, have probably heard that, leave me alone, um, <laughs> let me do what I want to do, I have my own life to live, you know, or variations thereof. Um, and even as adults, we don't want to be interfered with. We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it, and we want other people to just get out of our way. And Lewis is very honest about that. He didn't want to be interfered with. But his mind and his Zane Zoot emotional side were convincing him that maybe there might be a god. And if there really is a god, you might want to find out who he is, what God is like, and what he requires of you. So it's very, very, very important. And his, his view is very much like uh, if you're scuba diving, you can, you can do this. If you're scuba diving, I'd really encourage you uh, sometime in your, all your copious spare time um, to go back and read either Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment or Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. Um, they're only you know, 700 to 1,400 pages right. long. Uh, but they're really, really good, and they're written as a refutation of this idea of that the human state is about not being interfered with. Dostoevsky was a deep Christian, and he was appalled by what Nietzsche was teaching about what's called the Ubermensch, the Superman, that you could become a kind of person where you could do whatever you wanted to, and all of these laws and regulations and religions and all of that were just things that were designed to make you feel shackled down. And if you wanted to be truly free, you should overthrow all of that. And so, of course, that's what the protagonist in Crime and Punishment does. He goes off and kills this woman that he thinks is a blight on society and thinks he's going to feel really great about this and heroic. And then all of a sudden, he starts feeling guilty. Even though he doesn't believe in any religion or any of that, he feels guilty and begins to start going crazy because of the fact that he has transgressed against this law. And Dostoevsky makes a Christian woman who is a prostitute the heroine of the story um, and uses the story of Lazarus, the dead man, as what brings uh, the protagonist back to salvation. So anyway... It's worth reading, but only if you're scuba diving. <laughs> so uh, these gardens, uh, a great thing. And one little practical suggestion, uh, walking with friends is a great way to talk about things. And one of the things that Lewis and Barfield and the Inklings did is they talked about things that mattered. They had the courage to risk being vulnerable. And I talked a little bit about this on Sunday when we did a talk on fellowship. But part of the problem in many of our relationships is that we don't ever get to the point of talking about anything like this. But it's one of those things where somebody has to take the plunge. And I want to encourage you to be the person that takes the risk to ask questions that help get you to a deeper level. And we will talk later about some ways to do that. So um, this is the new building at Maudlin College. Uh, which was built in the 1700s. And this is where Lewis's rooms were. So if you see where, this is a wisteria vine that's trained on the wall. The one that's toward the left side, those front two windows um, at that corner of the middle section uh, were Lewis's rooms. And I've been in there, and it is um, much nicer than you might think that it would be. So there's a very nice drawing room with paneling and high ceilings and then a nice bedroom and a little kitchen. And that was typical for Oxford Dons during this time. And their lifestyle, you know, we hear about they have these meetings in their rooms and then they would go walk. Well, what would happen is that they had dinner uh, in the hall each night. And if you've watched Harry Potter, um, the hall that is used for the hall at Hogwarts is from Christchurch College at Oxford. Mm. And the one at Maudlin looks very much like that, except it's a little bit smaller. And so they would go and they would have these meals that were just served to them um, and wine that was just served to them. And um, it was very nice. They didn't have to pay for it. It's part of their deal. Um, 
and in the in the Maudlin uh, Fellows room, because not everyone could go to the Fellows room, in the Fellows dining room, which I also have managed to get into, um, they have a wonderful contraption from the 18th century that was designed to make sure that the wine didn't get too cold um, because it was drafty. And so there's like a little train track that's designed to keep the wine going back and forth in front of the fireplace. <laughs> so in some ways, it was the lap of luxury to be living there. So we have gotten through um, Lewis and Barfield, and Barfield's the first influential friend that draws Lewis toward Christianity, and it begins his journey. It preps him for Tolkien and Mythopoeia. And one of the handouts that you have is Mythopoeia. And I want to encourage you, regardless of whether you are on the beach or snorkeling or scuba diving, I want to encourage you to try to read this. You're going to resist me once you start it. But I'm going to encourage you to persevere, because this is an amazing poem. This poem was written by Tolkien for C.S. Lewis. And it recaps their conversation walking on Addison's Walk at Modlin College at 2 a.m. until 3.30 in the morning, the conversation that led to Lewis becoming a Christian. And you will see in this poem the dialogue between the atheistic, materialistic point of view and Tolkien as the creationist, deeply Christian uh, intellectual. And this poem shows up all over the place, elements of it, and all of the future work of Lewis and all of the future work of Tolkien. Um, hardly anyone has ever read this. I don't know why, uh, because it's hugely important uh, for anyone that's interested in either of them. So uh, I commend that to you. All right, we're going to take five minutes, and I'm going to ask you to try to break into groups of four. And I want you to just try to Think of one example of why knowing something other than rationally is important, okay? It could be something from your own experience where you knew something emotionally, like from holding a child, or it could be an experience along you. But why, why is it important not to just rely strictly on rationalism, okay? There's no right answer to this, no wrong answer to this. Um, so just talk with four other people for about six minutes, and then I will wrap this up. That's slightly vulnerable, but you can do it. Why knowing something other than rationally might not be an example for that? Yes, why? Think of an example, if you can, of why knowing something that's not based strictly on rationality is important. Either an example from your own life or something you can think about that was a bigger decision that had an impact on culture where they relied on imagination and intuition rather than strictly on facts. Example. I think it's a good example. I mean, 
wasn't always real rational. <laughs> This is your one and a half minute warning. Ladies and gentlemen, I hear some great discussion, but I'm going to cut you off. So sorry about that. I want to give two plugs for the other handouts. Um, the first one, and if you're on the beach, you really don't have to read these. I don't judge you at all. Um, the first one is called A Treaty with Reality. Um, this is by a woman named Danielle Durant, who is the personal research assistant for a guy named Ravi Zacharias, who is a brilliant apologist. And this is just a very short little piece about how Lewis tried to block off the painful parts of his experience, his mother's death and his time of war, 
and he made what he called a treaty with reality when he was 17 and basically just said it's sort of like Scarlett O'Hara, I'll think about that tomorrow, except tomorrow never comes where he actually thinks about it. And she talks about how his journey toward Christ brought him to take down that wall, to get rid of that treaty with reality and then allow Christ to invade every part of his life. So it's um, encouraging. So I commend that. The other thing, and this is just kind of fun, um, it is the probably the earliest short story that Lewis wrote, one of the very few short stories he wrote, called The Man Born Blind. And basically the theme of this, and of course the title comes from Jesus' interaction with the man born blind, uh, but the theme of this is about a blind person achieving light. And the idea that light is not so much something that you look at, and see as it is something by which you see. Okay? That's kind of a deep thing to think about <laughs> at 8 o'clock at night. Um, but I would encourage you to read it. It's very thought-provoking. So I appreciate your attention. As I said, it was the bird flying very fast tonight. Uh, but I hope that you got sort of the gist of what we were talking about. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you that you have made us in your image so that we are full of imagination and we are full of desires and that you have created so much beauty that fulfills those both in this world and in the beauty of who you are and what your kingdom is. Lord, I pray that you would open each one of our hearts and open the eyes of each of our hearts to see you as the true object of all desire, and that in that we would find joy. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So next week, we're going to jump into Lewis and Tolkien. It's going to be really fun. So uh, bring a friend. Thank you.